So this is the first Sunday of a new liturgical season called Epiphany. The Greek word or the Greek root of the word Epiphany means to reveal, to unveil something, to bring something into the light. And the stories of Jesus that we're going to be reading all through this season, from the arrival of the Magi in Bethlehem, to the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan that we read today, to the miracle of water to wine at the wedding at Cana, to the story of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. All these readings are meant to lift the veil a little bit around Jesus, to to show the the truest nature of Christ that shines through, that that transcends the physical and the measurable. Have you all heard of the Celtic concept of thin places? The Celtic Christianity says that, that heaven and earth are only three feet apart, but that there are places where even that distance collapses to tissue thin, where the veil is is permeable and we can experience a hint of the ineffable. I wonder if Jesus was kind of a, a walking thin place, a living epiphany with dusty sandals and calloused toes. And I think one of the marks of an epiphany is that it's almost always a little bit unexpected, right? Once you've had an epiphany, your perspective on things changes or your sense of what's real is different. And you can't really unsee it. You can't unepiphany it. You can't go back to where it was before. And then at the same time, it's also really hard to explain to somebody else what that perspective shift has been for you. Um, I remember, oh my goodness, this is almost 30 years ago now, when we were living in the Adirondack Mountains in New York. Um, and before our kids were born and when our kids were small, we were, I was a fly, a fly fisher woman. Mitch fished longer than I did. But often in the mornings, I would sneak out to, um, not sneak, but go out to the, uh, the river. We lived about 20 miles south of the source of the Hudson River in the Adirondacks. And the water is not the Hudson that you think of in New York City. It's clear. It's just crystal clear and cold. Um, and so one morning I was out, you know, doing, doing my casting thing. And there would be foam patches in the river sometimes, but they weren't pollution. They were because of the water that leached through the tannin. There was a lot of, of pine in that area. Um, And as I was fishing, I noticed there was a bit of foam, and it was coming upriver. I thought that was odd. So I stopped casting, and I looked at it for a while, and something white was swimming up the river. And I looked at it, trying to figure out what this animal was. It had pink eyes and little teeny tiny ears, and I thought, cats? The only thing I could think of that was white is a cat. I thought, cats don't swim on purpose. And then it went over a rock, maybe 10 feet away from me, and as it slid down on the far side of the rock, this big, flat, pink tail came up out of the water and went over the rock and back down. And I realized that it was an albino beaver, 
I'd never seen such a thing. Um, it's passing pretty much put all the fish down anyway. And after I saw that, I couldn't concentrate on my casting anymore. So I gave up and I went home. And I remember that day telling everybody I could think of. <clears throat> I remember you told as many people as you could. I did. Uh, that you could find. You, you, you talked to me, you talked to the regional forest ranger, an environmentalist friend, uh, the town assistant who knew a little bit about wildlife. Have you ever seen a thing like a white beaver before? And they all said, no. They all said such a thing was certainly possible. Uh, they must exist, but uh, no one had seen it. And they all, all of us, envied your experience. Uh, the, 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 the town manager guy said, don't suppose you had a video camera with you. Right. Uh, and this was, was way before there were any... Were the, yeah, this would have been something about gay big if she right. had it. Um, and and I, what I remember of, about telling everyone that experience was not just that I was sharing it with them all, but there was almost a, a hunger and a compulsion to it. And I realized that what I really wanted was someone else to say, oh yeah, I saw that too. I wanted someone else to corroborate what I had seen. And I never found anyone. There was nobody else who'd seen that beaver, and I was going to have to be content with my own experience. And I was, and I wasn't. I really wanted company in that. In the gospel reading that Heather shared with us this morning, we get a, a much older epiphany in a river story. And it's Luke's depiction of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. Now, unlike the stories in John and in Mark, uh, the version in Luke, like in Mark, I'm sorry, I said Mark, unlike the Matthew and Johannine stories, uh, Luke and, and, uh, and Mark have very minimal baptism stories. There's there's not much drama. There's no conversation between Jesus and John about whether Jesus should be baptized at all. In Luke, it it just seems like Jesus is just another guy in line to get baptized. And no one's paying attention to him at all. And uh, Luke shares it this way. When Jesus also had been baptized, no big deal, and was praying, the sky was opened And the Holy Spirit descended like a dove in bodily form. And a voice from the sky, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now the way Luke describes it, these words are aimed at Jesus. They're they're from God just for Jesus. You are my Son. It was not a pronouncement to the crowd at all. It was just for him. And I think those words had to have settled deep down inside him. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. So that everything else that he did came out of that identity, that sense of being God's beloved. That unshakable trust, that conviction of who he was. So that his vision, his mission, his teaching, his healing, his forgiving, his loving, all of that because he knew that he was the beloved. He was connected and covenanted with God.
If we could give you only one thing to take home today, it would be this. If there was just one epiphany to illuminate your heart today, it is this. It would be to grant you the deep heart knowledge of how beloved you are to God. How beloved you are to God. If I could give myself only one thing today, it would be it too. Because a lot of days it's really hard to convince myself of that as well. But when we know deep down in our marrow, at a cellular level, that we are beloved, it brings us so many gifts. It brings us courage. It brings us Patience. It brings us faith and creativity because we're able to risk offering our most authentic selves because we are so authentically accepted, fully accepted by God. When we know we are beloved, it also brings us humility because we know that God loves us even though we don't deserve it. When we know that we are God's beloved, broken things in us can start to heal. When we know that we are beloved, we become more whole. A couple of weeks ago, the Saturday before Christmas, or the week before Christmas actually, um, there was an episode of On Being, um, which is Krista Tippett's show, where she had a conversation with Jeff Chu, who is a writer and teacher at Cross Point Church uh, in North Carolina. Jeff Chu was a friend and um, companion to the author Rachel Held Evans, who passed away very suddenly a couple of years ago. And he's taken a book that she was working on before her death called Wholehearted Faith, and that's just been uh, published. So he finished the book and brought it uh, to be published. Jeff Chu describes wholehearted faith this way. He writes, Wholehearted faith is about recognizing our belovedness. If we are truly loved, what are we afraid of? If we are truly loved, nothing is beyond the limits of our imagination and our exploration. And then he goes on to say that wholehearted faith is about giving folks the courage they need to get through life in a world that can be cruel, in a world that's full of injustice, but invites us not just to sit there and suffer silently or sit there and watch others suffer silently. Wholehearted faith asks us to show up. It asks us to show up with our hearts and with our minds and with our bodies. Wholehearted faith is about recognizing our belovedness, writes Chef Chu. Now, I've never used the adjective wholehearted when talking about Jesus before. Uh, But, man, wholehearted seems to be the perfect description for Jesus. I'm wondering if that's what made him that, that walking thin place. Maybe his being wholehearted is precisely what drew crowds to him. The sick, 
and the outcast. He had a wholeheartedness, a, a, a wideness of love and, and a grounding in both human reality and in God's extravagant promises. And that was infectious. People could feel it and were attracted to it. And that may be also precisely what threatened the powerful and threatened the protectors of the status quo. Because he opened up God's love and God's power to everyone, including those who were deemed not worthy and outsiders. Maybe because Jesus believed what he heard from God that day at the Jordan River, that he was a beloved child of God, he could live the way he did. He could teach the way he did. He could love and forgive and build friendships with all kinds of people the way he did all the way to a cross. And yet what we notice in Jesus' life is that even though he received this message from God about his own belovedness, he didn't go about his life by himself. The first thing he does is go out and gather in disciples. And, you know, at least the 12 that we know the names of in the scripture, and I have to think there were other people, too, who followed him, other, other women, other folk who don't get named. And, yeah, most of the time they're pretty clueless, and they don't necessarily understand what he is and what he says. And yet still, it's important to him to have them along. It's important for him to have their companionship. Wholehearted faith requires companionship. Wholehearted faith requires community. No one can do spirituality alone. Well, maybe there's a few hermits that are called to that. But for most of us, no one does real, transformative, life-giving spirituality by themselves. There is something essential about having a group of people to journey with, even though it can be really frustrating to have other people along with you on a spiritual journey. Uh, community, especially faith community, is hard. And it's absolutely necessary. The book, Wholehearted Faith, is written in part to people who are longing for a religious community, but who have been frustrated by churches that are, are too narrow or that have turned out not to be places of love and acceptance that they advertise themselves to be. And this particular line that Jeff offered really caught my ear. He was describing people who were looking for real church community, and he said, most of the open-hearted wanderers I have encountered are not looking for a bulletproof belief system. They're looking for a community of friends. They're not looking for a spiritual encyclopedia that contains every answer. They're looking for a gathering of loved ones with whom they can ask the hard questions. And that's what we want too, right? That's why Mitch and I answered God's call to ministry 30-some years ago 
That's why we answered the bishop's call to come here, because we believe that this, too, is a community of friends, a place where people can gather, not because we have all the answers, but because we want to ask the hard questions together. A place where we can share epiphany experiences, and even though we don't all understand each other, we hear it and we value it because we value each other. We go along together holding each other's belovedness. That's what beloved community, that's what church is. In a little bit, we're going to have a piece of liturgy called the Wesley Covenant Service. We're doing a very abbreviated one because we're online. Well, and because it's really long. <laughs> the, the whole really, really long. Really, really long. <laughs> but it's an opportunity for recovenanting with God and recommitting to community. Now, those terms might be feeling really formal, re- recovenant, recommit, but at their core, they're simply saying this. They're about saying yes to the voice that calls to you, saying, you are my child. You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And can you, like Jesus at the Jordan, say yes to that awesome calling to be beloved? Can you say yes to the architect of love? Can you say yes to loving in response? That's what the Wesley Covenant Service is about. And we don't just say yes to that with God, with each of us as individuals. Mm -hmm. We say it as a community as well. And so we say yes to holding each other up, to letting each other know we're beloved. And we say yes to letting other people hold us up. Again, in Jeff Chu's words, he says, for better or for worse, there are seasons when we hold our faith, and then there are seasons when our faith holds us. Mm. And I am more thankful than ever for all the people, past and present, who have said yes and who sustain my faith, who believe for me when I'm not sure I can believe. They hold on to hope when I run out of hope. That's the commitment we make as well. That at our best is what church is. That at our best is what we pray Harvard Epworth can be for each other and for the larger community. That is our covenant. It's holding on to God for dear life and for dear love. And it's holding each other up in dear love and in dear life as well. When we love like that, when we accept our own belovedness and the belovedness of others, it can make Harvard Epworth into a thin place, can make us a thin people, spiritually speaking, where heaven and earth are not so far apart. And so in the covenant service, when we say to God, I am yours and you are mine, we say that to God, we say it to each other, even online, right? 
That's what gets us through these days, this surge, these challenges, to the glory of God. Amen. Our next hymn is...